All right. We are, actually, no, you know what? Before I even get going, I have a question for all of you. Who gets interrupted in your day? I think we're going to need to see a show of hands because I do not believe that a few of you, okay, so the rest of you just don't interact with humans ever. And I know that's a lie because you're here at church, which is like the birthplace of interruptions, right? Let me tell you, especially if you work here, it's like you come into work early and it's just interruption after interruption. Interruptions are a, a thing of life, right? Here's my theory of why interruptions are the way they are because you've got something like 7 billion people on the planet and we all have things that we have to do. And for whatever reason, we just don't coordinate all of our schedules and priorities with everyone else. So we interrupt each other, right? It just happens. It's normal. That's a, it's a ridiculous expectation, but we get in each other's ways. We're all busy people. But, you know, especially like, so I can even ask, like, how often you get interrupted in life. So who was interrupted sometime this week? Sometime in the last two days. How about this morning? You don't have a baby. That's why some of you put your hands down, right? And I feel for those of you with twins, feeling you are, Brianna. Like our seven-month-old brought herself into the world by being a nine-day early interruption into our lives. While I was preparing, you know, like on my parental leave, and I thought I was like over a week ahead, a week and a half, like, hey, let's have a meeting with the ministry teams. Here's what it's going to look like when the baby comes. It might even be late, but that's fine. And all of a sudden, my wife's texting me saying like, so I'm going to the hospital. Can you meet me there? (laughs) No, I'm busy. I have so much stuff to do. Obviously dropped it, like, let's go. Okay, so, so we went for that. Um, and still interrupts, like, it's a big weekend, it's May long weekend, and I need some sleep. And so she's been sleeping really well, but then picks, you know, Saturday night right before I have to preach and get my mind prepared for a sermon to just not want to sleep and start teething. I'll stop picking on her, she's just a baby. But she can't stand up for herself yet, so it's easy, an easy target for now. But so here's the thing, like interruptions happen, it's fine. Like that's just a thing in our life. But this quote from C.S. Lewis, I think really hits hard when we think about interruptions in our life. So C.S. Lewis said, how you respond in an interruption shows who you really are. Dang. Are you thinking back on some of your interruptions, how you've responded to that? When somebody got in your way, when you're out the, heading out the door because you're late for a meeting and you spent too much time on Instagram and now you got to do this thing and... Were you very patient with that person, very loving? So how you respond to an interruption shows who you really are. Now, you'll never remove interruptions and have a completely, perfectly peaceful life that just goes at your pace with nobody else having to interject unless you become a hermit out in the woods, and even then the weather will interrupt what you expect the day to go like, I think. But if you have a hurried, overly busy just out of control, crazy, running, ragged style life, you're going to actually bring on a lot more interruptions into your life, which might give you more chances to prove yourself, but more likely expose some parts about yourself that you don't really like. And here's the thing I think that's really fascinating, because this is a church, right? So I don't want to just be a motivational speaker. We talk about Jesus here. And one of the things when you take just a big 10,000-foot view overlook of Jesus's life, and I found actually... Uh, an arbitrary study that counted 156 significant events or interactions in Jesus's life, like most of those, at least like two-thirds, three-quarters of the things when Jesus had a conversation was Jesus responding to somebody interrupting him. 
He's going along, he has a meeting in this next town, he's going to speak a message, and then there's people who stop him in the road, and there's another sick person. There's always another sick person in Jesus' story. And even literally to the one point when he's working with one man who said, Jesus, come, please heal my daughter. And he's like, okay, let's go. And all of a sudden, another person interrupts that previous interruption. Like, Jesus' whole life was, his whole ministry time was just responding to interruptions. But then if you were to describe, for those of you who know Jesus, if you were to describe Jesus with some adjectives, you probably wouldn't say he was hurried or rushed or busy. He, he actually was very busy, but he didn't come across that way in his interactions, right? The way he spoke to people. Um, I find it absolutely amazing how incredibly packed his itinerary was, and yet he always took every single moment to just present love and pour out love to people all around him. So an author, Dallas Willard and pastor, said that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. I think sometimes we look at problems in the world, we look at the economy and social issues and divisive this and that and politics and everything, and, and depending on your worldview, you could probably say that the issue is post-modernity or obscured identity issues or porn and sex addiction or substance abuse or the prosperity gospel here or racist issues over here. But when we read the Bible, the devil doesn't actually interact in the world like the little cartoon character on your shoulder saying, do the bad things. In fact, actually, I think what happens way more often is the devil's very crafty, and instead he just works on making us busy, so busy to the point and distracted and moving away and multitasking to the point where we're falling apart. He makes our lives hurried completely, that we lose all control. Carl Jung, a Swiss psychologist who is the pioneer of the introvert-extrovert kind of personality, models, he, he quoted this. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Hurry is the devil in action in our lives, and we're rushing and busy. And you can see that this, is, this isn't just a theory far off. How often do you check in with somebody, small talk, you're just crossing by, catching up, and you say, hey, how's it going? And the response, good, it's great, everything's good. It's just busy, but it's good. Right? Is that like your obligatory response to you? I think that's how I say stuff constantly. This week, I was caught with it. Like, how's it going? It's a good week. I like it. I'm busy, but it's good. And we just nod along like, this is fine. When actually it's this like pathological pandemic we're in of busyness, hurriness that we actually expect it. See, one of the problems is we actually find our identity in being super productive, super high functioning to the point that we should be busy and we should be hurried and still somehow holding it all together, and that proves our worth. And instead, with that being the norm, especially at least in our society here, Western culture, what we see is an overload of anxiety and depression, stress and anger and irritability, and just a ton of interruptions, and us acting and reacting to that poorly. The big thing that's missing overall in our world is love. And that's like the, you know, the catchy, every single brand in American Eagle say like, you know, like, just be love and act out love. We don't really do it that often and we think it's because we need to mandate more of this or that or we need to have whatever, just better systems and structures that we can love, but we actually cannot love with hurry in our life. It's like oil and water, it just won't mix. Hurry and love are different. That's why now you start seeing why Jesus just didn't seem hurried even though he was busy, frankly, and 
interrupted regularly. Jesus was the perfect representation of love everywhere he went. If you think back to um, that, that statement from Dallas Willard, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life, Spiritual life might be just a strange term to you, but I saw it really well defined as this. Uh, spiritual life is your ability to give and receive love. So you need that, and when hurry displaces that, it doesn't quite work. But if you think about uh, that classic passage uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, how he describes love, the first words he used, it says what? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is slow to anger, right? Love is patient. Love is slow. It can't be hurried. It just displaces it. And that's how the devil ends up interacting in our lives. Think back to the last argument you had with a loved one, a spouse or a family member or just a really close friend, and stuff just went really wrong and you were not acting your best self. You were probably in a rush for something or late for something. I can almost guarantee that was a root cause to so many arguments you end up having with your family and friends. Think about the next time when you're dragging your kids out the door and they're making you late to church and you're just wanting to get everything going. You're probably not feeling love initially in that moment. You're probably thinking, like, I'll lock you in your room or just put you in the car overnight the next night so we actually get to church on time. Not super loving. You can't crate train your child. I've been learning that. I'm a new father. It's just, that was not working. So it, all of these things is why Jesus lived such an unhurried, what seemed like an unbothered to interruptions lifestyle because he was focused purely on love and he resisted the devil. So he resisted that urge to be hurried. And then Jesus goes on and, and says things like this to his followers, people like us who want to say, okay, Jesus, what's, how, do we, how do we accomplish that? And then he goes and says things like, come to me, all who are weary, all who are tired, and I will give you rest. And things like, my yoke, my expectation of you is easy, my burden is light. And so today the world is clearly moving faster and busier, and I'd even argue the last century has been faster and busier, more and more and increasing. But even 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, a statement like that, the cultural norm was busyness still. It was productivity, it was doing things. And then Jesus makes a statement like this because He's trying to accomplish something important. He's trying to heal us from this disease that we're all sick with, like a hurry sickness. I'm actually going to read for you here, Matthew chapter 11, 28, words straight from Jesus. This is the whole passage. He says this to his followers who are feeling that burden of doing so much and not able to connect and not acting in love. So he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So for all of you who would say you're followers of Jesus, did that help? Hearing those words, do you feel better? Do you feel slower? Like it just took all that stress off and now you can go about, there's no more interruptions and you're going to act perfectly fine the next time somebody cuts you off and you're in the slow lane now. You're probably saying stuff like, like, I think, when I hear things like this, like, love it, great thing. I'll put that on a poster in every single office and room in my house. But I'm a follower of Jesus, and I don't feel all that rested. I don't feel like my life is light and easy, like that yoke Jesus is talking about. I'm tired and exhausted and impatient a lot of the times. I'm irritable, and I feel interrupted. Can you relate to that still? So what's the deal? What's happening here? 
If Jesus promises it for us, how do we get that? What's the secret to the easy yoke? So I want to expand the passage a little bit here. So the, this thing, the yoke, is, first of all, that might be a funny term. So I'm not talking about the middle part of an egg, the delicious part of an egg. A yoke is literally a farming tool. It's the sort of frame that you would link donkeys or oxen together to equipment. If there was multiple or two animals, which is the more common thing, you'd link them together to the plow or whatever. You're tilling the soil. And so it's just literally a tool to help you accomplish more. Uh, a more human term, you can almost think of like an expedition backpack, that big old military metal frame with the sleeping bag on it. It's just a tool to help you carry and burden stuff and make that mechanical advantage make it a little bit easier. So it's literally a farming tool. But here in Jesus' contest, he's using it as a metaphor. And what can seem obvious, but sometimes can be a little bit like it's important to note. Jesus wasn't a farmer. He didn't literally have a yoke beside him. He was a teacher. He was a teacher of religious laws and duties. He was a prophet. So the thing is, a yoke was a common idiom for rabbis, teachers, um, as a way of reading and understanding the scriptures. It was a kind of term that was used of saying, like, my yoke is how you're going to read the scriptures and apply it to your life, and kind of the way you're going to do everything, like marriage and sex and divorce and government, like money, how you're going to budget stuff, uh, trading, everything, all of it. That, that was the yoke. It was actually a common term. And third, Jesus having a yoke, having a statement like this, wasn't unique, actually. All rabbis had yokes. What, there were others, too, that even claimed to be messiahs and rabbis, and they had a yoke as well. But the scandal here is that Jesus said he had an easy yoke. That wasn't common. In fact, it was almost a bragging rights thing for other rabbis to say, like, like my yoke, my followers, they do all of this stuff. Here's how perfect they are, and they, they accomplish all of these things all the time. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I think what is important to notice that it is still work. It is still a burden. It's not nothing. Uh, what can sometimes be uh, misconstrued in the idea and when people sometimes take a look at Christianity and what's been kind of become something like the health and wealth or prosperity gospel, it is not laziness. You can't do nothing. It is still a burden, but it's what Jesus, in Jesus' own words, who had a pretty intense, busy, and rough life. He said it was easy and light. So how do you experience this? How do you get what feels easy and restful compared to a culture that doesn't in any way feel easy and restful? It wasn't in Jesus' day. It's not in our day. When Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, he's inviting them into something. He's not just making a statement that says, now it will be and you will not have any more homework. He's actually saying, follow me, follow my lifestyle. He, he's asking his people to be uh, disciples of him, and it needs to be met with a physical response, not just an intellectual response. Because see, here's the thing. Here's a mistake that I think we make more than ever in our Western world, that if we just know something in our heads, then that's good enough, and it's fine, and it will, it will change everything around us. We can just know more things. A, a perfect example is, so, new series, uh, as was mentioned, we were previously, we spent like four months in uh, the book of Galatians. We've just been studying through it, like through passage by passage, word for word, seeing how it applies to our lives, uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and the general overall idea is that 
Jesus is sufficient for, and all the old ways and old traditions and previous like religious systems and practices, whether they were good or bad, they're not necessary for us to have a relationship and to experience salvation with God. Jesus is enough. So that's the overall idea, right? Great words and great ideas, and hopefully we're being shaped by them as a church. We've been studying this for a while, and we're memorizing them, and we're having conversations about it. But what happens, too, is I still regularly have conversations, whether in this church or just in general in my life, where people are saying, yeah, good stuff, but you know what? We still need to do these old things, otherwise I can't experience worship. We still need to do things this way, otherwise I don't get the Bible. See, the whole point is, like, rant over, we hear words and we think, that's great. We keep them in our brains, and if we don't get that into our hearts and our hands and our feet, it goes away and it doesn't actually change anything about us. Dallas Willard sums up this reality of what following Jesus actually looks like going beyond words really well, I think. It's a longer quote. I'll read it all. So Dallas Willard says, "In, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us in the world does. And it's a strategy bound to fail. If your life is literally so similar to the rest of the world all around you, whether in your workplace or just you go to the mall, the way you do stuff, you're on social media, online, it just looks the same as the whole world around you, you cannot experience this easy yoke of Jesus because it involves actually living the way Jesus lived. And that's a pretty radical idea. It's not simple in any way. Uh, Light and easy, sure, I can barely actually figure out how to apply that all, but it is radical. I've actually heard one author said, living like Jesus, especially that slower kind of pace, would be like taking a vow of poverty in the middle of a big, wealthy sort of community. You're actually isolating yourselves from what the cultural norm is. In one of Jesus's last teachings to his disciples, one of the, one of a statement he made, which I think really clarifies in yet another metaphor, what this following Jesus, adopting his lifestyle, bringing into your own life can look like. Uh, he speaks this. I think it's really applicable and really helpful in John chapter 15, verse 1, and I'll read that out. So John 15, verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such, a, such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and in my words, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is, my, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Big metaphor, big statement that you could probably spend months discerning on, 
few things I want to dive in here on are the, the disciples, the last word there, and all these statements of remain in me, abide in me, stay with me. Um, disciples it has a couple different connotations to it. The Greek word mathetes uh, is how we translate the word disciples. That's what Jesus would have spoken as mathetes. It's the word where we actually derive math from. It means to be a learner of or learner of a, from a master, right? Uh, the Hebrew word, which is also commonly used interchangeably for disciples, is talmudin, which is best translated almost as apprentice. So in this idea of disciples, you have all of that in, learner and apprentice. And the idea with apprentice is to be with, become like, and to do what the master would do if they were you. In this case, the master is Jesus. So to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what the master would do if he were you. This is all fancy, high biblical language, um, metaphor, everything chalked with church churchy statements and everything, really what it's saying is what the bracelets from the 80s VBS camps actually got right, that to live your life with a consistent motto of regularly asking, what would Jesus do? That's how simple it is, end of sermon. Just get the bracelet on, WWJD, get a tattoo of it. What would Jesus do if he were you? And it's what, what this actually kind of really means, and based on, so what this study is that we're kind of entering into here, uh, we're calling What's the Hurry, is based off of this book by John Mark Comer, an author and pastor in Portland, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, with the huge point of saying, we're missing something so, like, we're missing something so dear to us of being followers of Jesus because we're living like the rest of the world does with this ex- insane, hurried, busy pace of life, and actually to experience Jesus and to be evangelist to the world of God's message, we need to figure out how to slow that down. We need to figure out how to live like Jesus lived. Not doing nothing, not being lazy, playing Xbox your whole day, there's no interruptions or anything, but still living a life that's high capacity and high functioning without being hurried, being sustainable, and allowing love to be your main kind of outpouring and reaction to people. So what we need for this is what the author of this book, John Mark Homer, calls a rule of life. He, he claims what guided Jesus to, to present such a love-rich, relaxed pace, uh, unhurried life is a rule of life that he had over, that governed himself, and he invites us to establish that in our lives as well. Now, to clarify this idea, a rule of life, it's, it's not... It's grammar's important. It's not rules like have multiple rules and like a code and way to do stuff. Uh, a rule of life is actually this kind of old monk style term uh, came from I think the first or second century even is where it was starting to be used. A rule of life was based off of this Latin word regula where we get regular or regulation like what is your norm or baseline and also very similar some scholars have pointed out that this term regula, which rule, is uh, similar, uh, likely used, Jesus used the metaphor, the true vine. In a trellis, there would be horizontal pieces that would hold grapes up off the ground, and that term was used the same one, a regula, a ruler. So literally a straight piece of wood, and we get that, so we use it in offices and school now too. Um, But importantly, just to help explain that metaphor we read from John 15, Uh, for a vine to bear fruit that remains, it needs a trellis. It needs some sort of regula or ruler to hold itself up off the ground. 
uh, a vine without a trellis, just a wild vine without a structure, will bear a fraction of the fruit it is capable of. And what little fruit it does bear is vulnerable to predators and disease. So for a follower of Jesus to abide in him, using that metaphor as him as the true vine, you need a support structure in your life. So you need a rule of life. That's what we're just going to dive into for the rest of the time this morning from John Mark Comer. Talks about a rule of life. He describes it this way. I love it. As a schedule and set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what he would do if he were us. And this takes some extrapolating, right? You have to ideate a little bit of what, because Jesus was, like, existed 2,000 years ago, or lived 2,000 years ago here on earth, his time there. He was a Middle Eastern man. He was not married. He didn't have kids of his own. So suddenly, you know, if, if you're a mother with four kids, you have to figure out how to get them to soccer and ice skating and hockey. It's got to be a little bit different. Jesus didn't have a specific exact example for that. If you're an accountant in a high-functioning, high-business, like 80 hours a week kind of workplace, Jesus wasn't that. So you have to actually take a look at Jesus' life and start imagining more, like, what would Jesus do in this case? Jesus didn't have kids, but I would imagine that spending time with them would be a very high priority for him. And not just quantity of time, but quality of time would be a high priority. You got to actually start making your brain work on this WWJD, what would Jesus do idea. An important thing to clarify too for this idea of like regulations or a rule of life, uh, a rule is not a law. A law is this inflexible statement handed down from some sort of external force that's designed to keep you away from something negative. A rule instead is actually generated internally, it's flexible, it's relationally based, and it's designed to drive you towards something. So a perfect example is uh, like a, sp a speed limit sign. So we got uh, Cedar Street here. Was it 50? I think it's 70, but that's fine. There's a thing at the top of the hill that's not a game. Don't get a high score on it. It only goes to 99. I've not seen that. I've, well, <laughs> not for me. A speed limit doesn't care if you're in a rush. There's still the speed limit. It's 50, right? It doesn't care if there's no cars on the road. It's still 50. It doesn't care if you've got a really cool, fast motorcycle. It's still 50. It, it's always going to be that. But maybe you have instead like a rule of life that you want to be a, uh, like you want to have really good driving etiquette. You want to just be like a very gracious and caring driver. So people say like, wow, what a, what a patient driver. You know that thing like if you're at a stoplight and there's a bit of space on the right side and there's a car trying to turn right, so you scooch a little bit, like just courteous. Now the thing is that is flexible. It changes a little bit, right? In some situations, you're going to go the speed limit. Some situations, you're actually going to like help go a bit quicker to let the guy who's trying to go really, really fast by. It's a bit flexible. The speed limit is a law, and it's not flexible. But the rule, it moves a little bit. It's malleable. And the thing is, this idea of rule of life is a really hard sell, honestly, in our culture around us. Like We kind of have this modern... Um, push of like no rules, no regulations, just do everything you want and be super free and flexible. And instead we have this thing where what we're seeing from Jesus is actually establish some sort of structure in your life that you dedicate yourself to. And uh, Jordan Peterson, an author of a book that's actually called 12 Rules for Life, which was fascinating that it took off. That's got to be the most unmillennial title for a book. 
and yet it took off and was the bestseller for like three or four years in a row. Uh, he said this about rules or a rule in your life. Too much structure and you get a generation of rigidity that missed, uh, missed the lost and hurting people all around them and right beside them. It, and what happened is the promise of paradise at the end of a lifestyle of complete rigidity and structure and way too much ruling and everything, I found that at the very end you had a complete lack of purpose and identity. So that's actually happening with a whole generation that's kind of hit retirement now and it's like, what do I do? My whole life was work and doing stuff the right way. That was my identity. So too much structure is actually way too rigid and causes problems. Yet now we have this thing with so little structure, this modern progressive uh, design of like just the kid raises themselves pretty much and you're just there to like hand them candy. Uh, has caused like skyrocketing anxiety levels that are going through the roof. One out of four students in middle school and high school say that they're battling diagnosable mental health challenges. And in post-secondary, one out of two students claim to be fighting depression and crippling anxiety issues. So too little structure is not working at all. What we need is to have a rule of life. And you might be saying, okay, that's fine if you're one of those like type A, you got, you got your structure and your code and you whatever, have it written down and you say your mantra every morning. I would challenge to you that you all have a rule of life already, whether you know it or not. You have a way you do stuff. You have what you find important. You have your priority list. And the thing is, your rule of life is currently driving you towards something or away from something. If you're finding yourself just unable to get past that addictions or these bad habits, if you're finding yourself unable to just start embracing better disciplines for your family and things like that, it means that your current rule of life is not working out for you. What you need, so you have to start thinking, what is your current rule of life doing to the person that you're becoming? Is it helping you become who you want to be or is it causing the slow decline from who you want to be? So a rule of life should do three things for you. First thing is, it should turn ideas into reality. Just like we talked about in that whole story, it should take stuff that's up in your head and move it to your hands and your feet. It should make things become real so that you don't hold uh, ideas that you've maybe memorized, love your enemy, serve your neighbor, don't hold resentment. Uh, it should go from just being cute pictures on your bathroom wall to ways you actually live easily and naturally in your life. It should turn ideas into reality. The second thing is it should help us live in alignment with our deepest desires. The Apostle Paul dives into this heavily where he says like it just in his life as he's trying to figure stuff out and as he's wrestling with following a life of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says things like I don't do what I want to do but I do what I don't want to do and I have this, this difficulty. So then even the Apostle Paul says but when I remain in Jesus, I can focus myself and I find that Jesus guides me towards the things I want to do. There's this like desire within us that almost like this animal brain that drives us towards doing these things that we regularly regret after, but we can't avoid going to that. So a good rule of life will help us live in alignment with our deepest desires. And lastly, a good rule of life will help us experience peace. Almost in the way a biblical term would be shalom, which is just a complete peace and rest with people around you, with creation around you, with God. There's not this anxiety, am I doing good enough? God, am I actually focused on you? Am I actually worshiping properly? Do I pray enough, God? Am I reading the Bible or people around? Am I loving you the right way? Did I forget this? But you actually start to have a peace that, yeah, things are going all right. 
So this can be, seem a little bit in, intimidating, but I think it's a, it's a really cool journey I'm excited to take us on as a church to find how to do this. And what I want to do is just uh, leave us here this morning with just seven things to kind of help understand when you're taking a look at your life, how to start changing your habits, create a bit of a system or a schedule or, or things, how to do that without it being way too intimidating. Because so, the thing is, you don't have to be a monk about this. So the first one is seven things to help us in creating our rule of life. First one is start small, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of, there's this thing, the first day of Lent syndrome, right? Or even the New Year's thing, like I'm going to, and huge goal, right? Like I'm going to not even have a drop of sugar for the next 40 days. And it's like this huge task. And by day three, you're like, wow, okay. Uh, but these like low in sugar cookies are kind of okay and permissible, right? But first day of Lent, you're just like ready to go. You have this huge goal. Uh, start small, literally like, Something that's like, if, if you don't read the Bible at all, like an hour a week, right? If you're just barely doing it, maybe move it to an hour a day if you're advantageous a bit. Start small with basic things. What about moving the place in your home where you charge your phone? And this is huge. And this, trust me, this convicts me heavily. I hated reading this section in the book and writing this sermon this morning because I was like, oh gosh, if I say these words out loud, I should probably try it myself. Neuroscience, now even saying that word like way above my pay grade, neuroscience has shown that the last thing you think about when you go to sleep and the first thing you think about or do when you wake up has more power and influence in shaping your daily life than any other encounter throughout your day. And for most of us, that's our phones. Whatever it is, if it's social media, Facebook or Netflix, scrolling, TikTok, just checking in on the news, for most of us, because we charge it, that's our alarm clock, right? It's just right there. And the first thing, and even this morning, I woke up and checked, and there was an email. Okay, let's check it out. Imagine an entire generation. You don't even have to imagine. This is the reality. An entire generation shaped by that the last thing they're thinking about before they go to bed is about beautiful images of people, like near soft porn levels, visuals on Netflix or Instagram or TikTok. That's the last thing that's in our minds and then the first thing you wake up to is a tweet from Elon Musk or some new political scandal or updates from the news on the war. Imagine that happening all while you're in a rush to try to get out of your door to school or work, and suddenly you can start seeing why we're in the state we're in as a society, because that's the norm. So you don't need to go like Amish, complete digital Sabbath away in your life, but you, you don't have to learn how to use a telegraph, but what you could do is just move the space in your in your house where you charge your phone and start small. The first five minutes of your day could shape the entire 24 hours of every single day. The last five minutes of your day will have more power and influence than what you could try disciplining yourself to doing for hours and hours on end. So start small. The second one is be specific. Use time or place or space or date markers in your set schedule. Don't just make this far off idea of like, hey, I'm going to do whatever, like uh, those inspirational posters or whatever clothing brands that say just like, live your life. Okay, cool. Okay, when? Right? When will you actually do the thing? So say you're going to have like Saturday mornings, that's like pancakes and rest. Like pancakes, I'm just going to like relax and listen to music. Make something specific in how you're going to try to move towards a rule of life. Third is subtract, don't add. Hugely dangerous is going to take is taking your life as it is right now and saying, and I'm going to do one more thing. Instead, try to like 
rip things down. In fact, here's the, I'm giving you the permission for, uh, take a look at your calendar and your phone this next coming, uh, when you wake up or whatever in the morning, you're getting ready to go, you see your schedule, and just like delete a couple things. Just do, even close your eyes and delete a few things. <laughs> Don't add something without making sure there's space because you remove something from a busy life already. Another one, the fourth, is uh, take into consideration your stage of life. If you're single without kids, you've probably got a little bit more liberty on your time. If you have a newborn or if you've got twins, you probably have very, very little flexibility on what you can do. If you're retired, uh, you might have different energy levels, but you have different kind of time and ability to pour into. But be real about your stage of life, where you're at. Be honest and considerate of what you can actually accomplish and what's actually fair to yourself. Uh, I think that's fifth. I don't have numbers in here. Your personality. Take into consideration your personality. If you're extroverted, even though like a couple months ago we had this weird thing where almost everyone on our leadership team came up and said, I'm introverted. I'm really introverted. I don't even like people. Um, no, it's not actually true. But if, if you're an extrovert, don't force yourself to hide away and become a hermit and just read and be silent. Like, actually engage in stuff that works with your personality. If you are introverted, don't force yourself to stand up in front of a whole bunch of people and talk for half an hour. It's a nightmare if that doesn't work for you. <laughs> I see people get the flops. That's like crazy. But take into consideration uh, your personality in, in this too and be fair to yourself. Six, balance easy and hard things. Okay? Because if you're making changes in your life, if you're doing things, some stuff will be easier to let go of. Like, honestly, there's going to be some disciplines that say, like, you know what? I will literally cancel Netflix. Like, that's just one thing, and it's going to suck for a bit. But then when I'm not paying for it and it's not available, it's a bit easier to deal with. Probably a little bit harder to deal with, like, the really difficult things in your life. Like, if you want to kind of enter into conflicting conversations better. That's hard, but don't just do the easy things. Balance easy and hard things. Don't drive yourself nuts by trying to do things that are so difficult. Uh, like if you find prayer really, really awkward, um, challenge yourself to do something like that. Don't just do the things that's like, hey, I, I can finally, you know, go outside for a walk five minutes a day. That's fine. Last, holistic. So the way you're going to try to live your life, especially if you're trying to slow down uh, a hurried pace, needs to be, your rule of life has to be holistic. It has to be something that applies to every single thing you do. For me, I can't just be like, Grant, as a pastor, I'm going to do these things and be better at this, and then Grant as uh, an angry driver or a mountain biker, right? I can't have different things. The way I'm going to live my life, the way you need to live your life has to be holistic between every single thing you do. And the thing is, often we think that spiritual disciplines are something that we just put into our schedules and tick off the boxes and we, we did the thing and closed our hands and prayed here, and we read the devotional off the Bible app here, but the, ultimately, everything we do is actually a discipline of some sort. Everything we do is a practice of acknowledging what we currently value uh, in that moment. And the the actually sad truth is just that lots of the things that we value in different whatever things that we're doing in roles throughout the day uh, aren't really good things for our lives. So this whole idea of like, okay, I'll check off enough spiritual disciplines. Actually, the mindset has to switch. Don't add a spiritual discipline into your thing. Just realize every single thing you're doing right now, you've at least convinced yourself is important enough. Now you just have to take a real look at, okay, what's actually beneficial for me and my relationship with God.
So seven things to consider just as, as you're taking this on, right? The goal is not to be this huge, like, we're not going to become a monastery, but it should look different. It should be a bit of a surprise to maybe people around you or to yourself when you look in the mirror. Hopefully you feel and look a bit more rested. But a big thing is a, a good rule of life uh, when you do this, it's, it's, a working, it's a work in progress. It's like a working document. It's going to change. It's going to adapt. It's going to kind of have difficult times. It's going to have easy times. It's going to work out. It also is a means to an end. The goal is not to just say, I have this perfect code of life, right? That's why we don't even directly see Jesus talking about, like, I do these things when I deal with a person who has leprosy, and I do these things when I deal with a Pharisee, right? A little bit more of a fist. We don't really see that. Instead, we just see his life. The goal is not the rule you're creating, your system or structure. The goal is actually your whole lifestyle. The, the end result is going to be a bit more peace, a bit less hurry, a bit more love in your life. That's the goal. It doesn't actually really matter figuring out that you do a schedule and you Sabbath on Monday evenings or whatever. Uh, that's not actually the point. The point is how your whole life will be impacted by all of this. And lastly, and this is the most important thing, it's really what's clear in this book, it's what I've discerned when praying for you guys all as a church that I think we so badly need that a good rule of life will prioritize rest. Because we need some rest, I think, right? This has been a wild season. We need some rest. And I mean real rest, not just being lazy and doing stuff. Like we, just, we need to have like a good, healthy burden load in our life, but also rest well. Rest together with people you love. Rest on your own. The bit of a spoiler, but the four big key things that this book talks about is spending some time in silence and solitude, even a little bit of time in your life, having real Sabbath, which means a real dedicated time that is not meant to be productive, but actually just meant to be with your people you love, with God. Simplicity, because we make our life so complicated, we need to actually figure out ways to be a bit simpler in life. And then lastly, to just literally slow down huge thing I need to work on. Trust me, I know. I know, and I'm working on it. But literally, slow down. Because eternity is a long time. So are you ready to do something like this? Because it's a bit of a, to construct a trellis in your life, uh, to actually make a structure to abide in Jesus, has a bit of like a get-on, get-off point. And, and that is where we're at here too. Are you ready to abide in Jesus, the true vine, to bear the fruit that you're truly capable of, to embrace a new practice or schedule, or maybe two schedules, to make room for love and joy and peace, to become your default settings, and not just ideals in your mind, but actually something that works out of your hands and feet? That's the goal for, that's what I would love to see in my life and all of your lives. That's the goal for this series. And what I just want to do, I, I want to pray for you, and I want to end off with the words from Jesus again, that's Matthew uh, 11, verse 28 to 30, in a different translation. Um, I'm going to read that off. We can go about our day, to, And uh, yeah, that, that's the thing. And I would suggest, too, if, if you're just, if any of this is kind of intriguing to you, if this is, like, interesting, you're kind of curious a bit more about it, like, check out this book. It's the it's House of James, the big red book by John Mark Homer. You can just even say, like, the, the book about hurry or something like that. Uh, they'll know where it is on Amazon, too. Really fantastic read. Probably the most convicting thing I ever read, and it forced me to want to sell my motorcycle, so had some real application, too. Listen to these words, and then I'll pray for you. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Are you weary? Carrying a heavy burden. Come to me. Words from Jesus. 
I will refresh your life, for I am your oasis. Simply join your life with mine. Learn my ways, and you'll discover that I'm gentle and humble and easy to please. You will find refreshment and rest in me, in my life, for all that I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. God, thank you for your perfect example of love to us, God, that we're so bad at uh, bringing on ourselves and pouring out, but God, we want to learn constantly. We just love the example that you set for us of responding to interruptions, God, with love, to people who are hurting, to people who just don't seem to care about our schedules at all, God. Help us see in our lives where we have made our own structure, rule of life that has not been good for us, God, that we've made expectations and priorities that has not helped our relationship with you, our relationship with other people around us, God, with those we love. God, give us, too, a blessing of peace in our lives, God. We need that rest. It's a beautiful day this weekend, the, uh, sunny outside, but God, just bring your peace into our lives. Help us bring that out to our community around us so they can see our testimony of a unhurried life focused on love. God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Go in peace.